Today on Sharp Scratch, you'll learn how much more the needle stick injury people can do for you, how chronic migraines didn't stop one surgeon from pursuing her career, and the surprising proportion of doctors who are also patients. You're listening to Sharp Scratch, episode 12, Being a Sick Doctor. This is a podcast brought to you by the BMJ and sponsored by Medical Protection, where we get medical students, new doctors and expert guests into the studio to talk about all those things that you need to know to be a doctor, but that you probably won't learn at medical school. I'm Lauren Nunes Mulder and I'm a fifth year medical student at the University of Cambridge. And with me in the studio are our regular characters, new doctor Declan and med student Anna. Would you guys like to introduce yourselves? Yep, so hi, I'm Declan, I'm a FY1 doctor in Newcastle, I'm currently on academic rotation and I would consider myself to have a chronic illness. Interesting, alright, and Anna, how about you? Hi everyone, my name's Anna, I'm a final year medical student at King's College London and I'm also Laura's successor in the role of editorial scholar at the BMJ and my initial thought about this podcast is every time you say being a sick doctor, I think just being a fantastic doctor because most people <laughs> that I know would use the word sick to mean good. Too hip and down with the kids, aren't you? That's yeah. It it's, it's got double. I mean, you can be a sick doctor while being a sick doctor. Exactly, you know? exactly. Right? And uh, we're also delighted to have with us a really wonderful expert guest, Anne Bono. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hello. Yes, I'm delighted to be here. Um, I'm currently the president of the Faculty of Occupational Medicine, but I'm also a consultant occupational physician in the NHS in Leicester, where my practice has particularly over the years focused on medical students and doctors with health issues. I personally don't like the term sick doctor. I think that it's important to talk about doctors, and doctors have health problems, and the rest of the community have health problems too. Some are long-term, some are not, and some doctors have difficulties, and that's what I deal with. Oh, fair play. Thank you so much. We're so delighted to have you here, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation this afternoon. So, last episode, we talked about sick days and taking a day off work when you're poorly. And this week we're going to be talking about when you realise that your illness doesn't necessarily have an end date and if you're going to return to work then you're going to have to return to work with your illness still ongoing. So what I want to know as a med student is that if you or I, Anna, are in this situation in the future, what's it like? What's it like talking to colleagues? What's it like talking to patients? Uh, What's it like coming to terms with your illness? And how would I access support to continue working, you know, say from occupational health as, uh, you know, the faculty that you yourself are from, Anne? So we're going to hear from two doctors later on, one who's got migraines and one who's got anxiety. Um, but there are loads of different kind of long term illnesses that doctors may have whilst they continue working. So, Anne, could you give some examples of, of other conditions that doctors may be working alongside? Yes. The first thing I would say is that I think all doctors at some stage in their career will experience health problems, Mm -hmm. even if it's only flu or similar sort of problems. Some people will have a longer term condition, which may not necessarily be described as an illness. And actually, I'm rather allergic to the concept of describing things as illness. Why is that? Um, Because an illness comes with certain connotations about needing to be cared for, about not being able to do your normal activities. Mm. Whereas actually, most people, um, and certainly by the time they get to my age, and I'm not going to 
confess that, <laughs> but most people uh, end up living alongside one or more medical conditions. Mm. Um, most people over 50 uh, take some sort of medication which suggests that they have something in their background that could be helped in some way um, or perhaps to improve their prognosis. So um, that would be my would be my starting point. Mm. But clearly there are some, some problems that are more difficult than others. There are some long-term conditions that people live with very satisfactorily, totally adjusted to. Uh, diabetes would be a good example for the mm. majority of, of people with diabetes. But there are other conditions such as epilepsy, which may pose particular problems, or recurrent conditions, or sometimes conditions which are actually linked to the workplace or potentially linked to the workplace. Uh, I'm particularly thinking of the large number of people who um, have sick certification related to, in the broadest terms, mental health issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's like a really broad spectrum of things. There's Huge. physical, mental, work-related, yeah. not work-related. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, I, I, and I suppose from my own experience, I'd say that in our service, we see a large number of doctors. And if we analyse the uh, the diagnoses, where we make a diagnosis mm -hmm. at the end of seeing them, um, the majority have some sort of health issue and that's fairly reasonably divided between, uh, say, two-thirds mental health issues, one-third physical health issues. And that's because the physical problems can often be more easily already dealt with uh, by a sort of standard employment practices or a, um, a word in the right ear. Um, the mental health problems tend to be more difficult or, or, or cause people perhaps more distress or more mm. concern about their future. Yeah, that is really interesting. And do you, do you yourself know... Personally, like not not from your professional life, perhaps, but like you know, amongst your colleagues oh. and so on, doctors who are working alongside health conditions. Oh, I know a lot of doctors who are working mm -hmm. alongside health conditions, uh, and uh, anyone who knows me personally will know um, that my late husband was a professor of cardiology who had motor neurone disease and worked to the last day, and actually wow. saw patients in his clinic with a voice synthesizer. Wow! So I'm he... sure he was very aggravating to lots of people, but that's <laughs> what he did. So he had a he had a voice synthesizer and led consultations in that way. Exactly, and. He he had a junior doctor, um, the equivalent of what would then have been called a senior house officer, to work with him in the clinic to uh, translate to the patients if his speech was in any way difficult to follow. Wow. Like how, how long a time did he work with a voice uh, synthesizer? Probably so? for about about a year, six months to a year. Wow. Uh, and I know, I can think of a doctor who actually has been giving some lectures recently about his own return to health after a very serious accident, a glider accident with multiple fractures and spent nearly a year in hospital. And he has successfully returned to work and was determined to do so. But one of the big factors that affects whether people remain in work is whether or not that's important to them. It's not just the support oh. or otherwise that they get, it's the mindset on how much they want to work. Now, that's not saying anything pejorative about people who don't manage to get back to work. Some people can't work alongside health problems, mm. but actually the majority of people can work with health problems. And the really important thing is to find ways to help them to do so. Really interesting. So how about you, Anna? Do you at the moment know of any doctors working alongside long-term health conditions? Um, so I know myself and actually one of my closest friends, she'd always struggled with debilitatingly painful periods. And obviously this isn't something that's affects her all the time and I think that she found that quite difficult because of the quite personal nature of it she's not a doctor she's a medical student mm. but explaining that to supervisors you know why she wasn't coming into uni that day and she had quite a struggle to get decent treatment for it as well and I had something quite similar I had a contraceptive device um, inserted and after that I had chronic pain for about six months and I remember after about two weeks of not going into uni and it happened to be 
the holidays and I had to go back to uni and just thinking I genuinely don't know how I'm going to do this Mm. and I have no idea who I'm even going to talk to about it I ended up actually not talking to anyone at my uni and just going in for as much as I could um taking days off when I could going in and then going home in the afternoon and I think that's the experience that a lot of medical students have they don't necessarily feel like they can talk to anyone in the faculty about it I know a lot of med students who have chronic conditions you know they're my peers talk a lot people are quite increasingly open about both mental Mm. and physical long-term conditions like yourself Anna yeah but I'm not actually sure that I know that many doctors current practicing doctors who have health condition do you no I think also because of like the nature of medical students like moving around you probably don't get to know people well enough for them to maybe be that open about it Mm. and you know it might come down to the whole thing about like the stigma around potentially being a doctor who has mm. a chronic health condition. So I know, I know a few doctors on Twitter, for example, like there's mm. bipolar doc and there's Hannah Barham-Brown, who's yep. got Ellis... Uh, Ellis Danlos Syndrome. Ella Danlos Syndrome. I always have to like double check how, how that's spelled before I say it out loud. And then, of course, I know these two doctors that we're going to hear from later on today. So I really feel I'd quite like to challenge you here. Yeah, challenge me. Because I suspect yeah, that there me. are many more doctors yeah. with chronic health conditions mm. than you're aware of. Mm. A lot of people don't want to advertise. Yeah. Mm. Because actually, having a health condition is very much part of life. Um, I mentioned my husband, and normally I would keep very quiet about that. That was a very obvious physical disability, which I think a lot of people around him found very difficult to deal with. But there are many other doctors with non-obvious health issues and actually a third of our total workforce in our hospitals is seen in some way in occupational health oh, every wow, year so that's it's really nothing interesting. to be surprised yeah. about and doctors are seen in the same proportion as they are in the workplace. So Declan you, you've mentioned that you have a chronic condition yourself, Can you yeah. tell us more about that? Yeah yeah of course, I've got something called keratoconus which is basically something that makes your vision extremely bad and, and is progressive um, so when I was 18 I had a cornea transplant because pretty much contact lenses and all the other kind of ways to normally manage visual problems weren't really sufficient. Mm. So my main issues were actually kind of getting into medicine and the difficulty with dealing with a visual impairment while studying. Once I was in medical school, I was quite well supported. I was given an iPad to take pictures and enlarge ECGs and stuff like that while on the ward. Nice. Since becoming a doctor, there's two main kind of, I guess, concerns that I have um, relating to my disability and working within the NHS. So the first one is kind of vulnerability. So for me, having my cornea transplanted, it's fairly vulnerable if I get physical trauma to the eye. So I'm on a ward with a lot of people who have liver failure and therefore get hepatic encephalopathy. So can't really be considered to have capacity. As the doctor, having an invisible illness, often if a patient is kicking off as someone who has encephalopathy will do, the doctor's immediately called to go and sort the situation out. So that happened to me last week. Really? And there was a yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So there was a guy who was quite threatening to the nurses and was basically a nurse came up to me and was like, he's threatening us and he's gonna do a runner, can you uh, can you sort them out? And so something that I'm kind of faced with, I think people who don't have the same problem as me is if this guy hits me in the eye, I could go blind. And that would have massive implications on my future career. So that's one thing that gives me a great deal of anxiety. Yeah. I, m- I remember talking to the occupational health department about it and I've got an A&E rotation where I imagine I'm exposed to a lot more violent 
intoxicated patients. And I just kind of asked about that and there was the result of the conversation was really you could be faced with violent people anywhere. Your colleagues around you will support you, but it's kind of difficult to adjust for that. Yeah. So I guess the anxiety around certain circumstances um, regarding my vulnerability is one issue that I have. And then the other one that I kind of have is about future career progression. Oh, yeah? So I, I want to become a surgeon, but with bad eye, I will need another cornea transplant. In, Just to clarify, you've got like one eye that's had a transplant. And so I have eye. my left eye that's had a transplant. I probably will need the right done as well, but the transplant typically lasts about 10, 15 years. So I will, yeah. I will require future transplants. Yeah, yeah. I want to be a surgeon, but I've kind of got this sort of unpredictable future. I've, I've asked advice from my ophthalmologist, advice from occupational health, advice when I was in university from the disability helper people at university, and no one could really give me an answer. So I'm kind of left in this limbo of wanting to pursue a competitive career, but in 15 years' time, if I have a messed up cornea transplant, where will I be left after dedicating so much to it? Yeah. So those are kind of the two main concerns that yeah. I have at the moment with my eyes. Yeah, thanks for being so open about that, man. Yeah. Um, do your colleagues know? Do your fellow junior doctors know about this? So I've got a thing where f- the donation of corneas for transplantation is kind of inadequate compared to other tissue. So I'm fairly open about it in hoping to try and promote cornea donation. So most of my friends do know about it. Mm. I'm, I'm a pretty open person anyway. But I mean, just the whole invisible illness kind of... Um, situation I think most people probably would not be open to it to be fair now that I've moved into a new job I've never mentioned it to any of my colleagues and none of my consultants or anything would know unless occupational health told them whether whether that has happened I don't I don't know oh oh, oh. occupational health would only uh, disclose something like that to management as we would describe it mm. to your consultant or to the hospital management in some way um, with your consent uh, I'm, I, I imagine uh, so I, w- I will have given consent for it to yeah. be disclosed there's that first point of having a visual impairment that other people can't see and maybe having that extra burden of like having to explain it if you want people to know rather than people just being able to look at you and know there's the sort of uncertainty around your future career that you've mentioned different professionals that where you've been seeking certainty but maybe haven't found certainty so it'd be really great to like delve into that in a bit more depth but before we unpack that let's let's hear from some other stories from other doctors so you'll recognize these two people because they've both been on sharp scratch before so the first one's from our regular sharp scratch podcaster Chidera Ota who's in her second year of being a doctor and she has anxiety so let's hear her story. The first time I really really felt felt anxious was probably in the run-up to the exams of my first year at uni but it basically got to a point where I stopped being able to really think um, and I would start a thought and I would get sort of another thought and it just felt like my head was jumping between different ideas and it made it very difficult for me to revise because I'd literally pick up one page and read a sentence on it that reminded me of a different concept and drop that page and pick up another and then eventually just fall into like a puddle of tears um so I think I felt a bit ashamed because you know medics are supposed to be people who help others with their health and we're supposed to be strong and intelligent and you know everyone talks about how you play hard work hard um and I think the thing with anxiety is that it made me feel a little bit weak because I realized that there was a part of me that I did not have complete control over 
And that's not something I was used to. And that's not something I liked. And I didn't like the idea of other people knowing that because particularly within a competitive subject like that, you didn't want it to be something that other people could use against you. So my dad is a GP. So when I basically finally came clean and was kind of like, this is what I've been going through for the past, I mean, realistically few months, but acutely sort of a three, four week period, um, he like rushed into action. And actually I went home for a little bit during, um, you know, the revision period. And my dad found a local counsellor and I went and saw her probably like three times within the first week. So that's kind of what went on. And then an important thing that helped is that my tutor told me to just just in case, just in case I didn't make it through the year to go and speak to my GP and with evidence from my counsellor, get a letter just preemptively explaining some of the difficulties that I'd had in the last few months with my mental health. Um, I did realise that my anxiety does tend to be triggered primarily by um, events that I know that are in the future, but I also know that I can't stop. Um, so actually, with most things in life, even things that are quite nerve wracking, if they're a surprise, I actually deal with them quite surprisingly well. My issue are things like exams, etc., where you know that actually in two or three months time or whatever, something awful is going to happen. So when you sign up as an F1, you have to fill out like an occupational health form. And I was very honest on that and said that I dealt with anxiety and I'd had counselling, that I didn't feel that I had any adjustments that would be needed to be made to the way that I work. But I also then spoke to the foundation school director about it because she has a meeting with every single student at the beginning of the year. And she'd read the form by this point. So she just said, you know, I've noticed that you mentioned that you have anxiety. How can we help with that? And I said, you know, I think it will be okay if I need anything. I've had counselling before. I know where to go to get it. And if there's anything else that I think you can do, that will be fine. And I also let my um, educational supervisor know. Again, what has always been great is the amount of support that you have in the NHS. Um, I think the thing that the NHS has over literally any other um, job is the camaraderie. And I was super lucky that I worked in a great team at all times. And even before I left, people were saying, you know, either I'm going to be here because I'm also in call. So I'm just going to help you with your jobs or I'm not here, but you know, you've got my number. I'm literally on the other end of a phone. I'm on the other end of a text. Don't be afraid to contact me. Um, here are some things that I've done preemptively just to make your evening shift a little bit easier. So having that support has just been beyond helpful. What was going through your head when you were hearing Jadera talk about the sense of shame and weakness she felt when she got diagnosed with anxiety? That's something I've heard very often. I don't think it's just prevalent in, in medicine or mm. indeed in healthcare. I think that people are still concerned about admitting to health problems yeah, that is a good uh, point. and mental health problems for all the recent publicity and, and uh, you know, applaud the royal initiatives, for example, mm. that have encouraged people to be open about their health problems. Um, I think people do still worry about perhaps being seen not to cope, almost have the feeling that if they admit to other people that they're not coping, then they're less likely to be able to do so. Yeah, and I guess there's also the point that the nature of some mental illnesses can increase that sense of shame or worthlessness. When faced with a problem, she coped. And yeah, I that's think true. That, yeah. I think that's yeah, yeah. extremely common. Mm. 
and certainly in terms of doctors, work has shown in the past, and I'm not necessarily saying that this, this relates to an attitude that should be encouraged in relation to how we deal with doctors with health issues, but actually the last thing that goes with a doctor, if you like, is their sense of professional obligation. So actually, people are very concerned about how they'll cope with something. And the answer is that they usually do. It's very unusual for somebody not to be able to cope. With the with sort of the work professional duty side yes. of things. If, yeah. if, if, if somebody is actually confronted with a situation in which they're required to do something, almost always they do. Is that primarily with like mental health problems or would you consider it the same for physical problems? Uh, because I, f- from my experience in medical school and work in the last few weeks, wards aren't necessarily designed in a way to allow somebody with a particular mobility issue to be a doctor and irrespective to how much you want to fulfill your professional role I think there are limitations to how you can do that. I agree with you I'm not trying to diminish any idealism here but I think there has to be some realism about what is actually practicable in a workplace. Now, in terms of legislation and legislation under the Equality Act, employers are required to look at what adjustments might be reasonable. And many of the premises in which healthcare or medicine is practised, they may have some adaptations, for example, for wheelchair access, particularly for patients. Seems like it makes sense, wouldn't it, for a ward to be wheelchair friendly for patients Mm. and for doctors, right? But the reality may be that there are some jobs that a person cannot do uh, because of a lack of mobility. That sounds like a really difficult situation to be in, doesn't it? It is a really difficult situation to be in. And I don't want to sound hard-hearted about this, but I think one of the long-term benefits that an occupational physician can bring to a consultation with somebody who has a significant and long-term health issue is to bring some realism to their consideration of their future. So what would you advise to a new doctor who was really daunted by the prospect of being open about their mental illness? That's a complex question and it's it's about who they should be or not be open with mm. and it depends upon the illness. Mm. If a doctor or indeed anybody in the workplace, has such a degree of mental distress or diagnosed mental illness that may cause problems for them, I think they should be seeking appropriate assessment by an accredited specialist in occupational medicine if they have a significant mental illness. And part of the discussion would be about the extent to which disclosure is appropriate Mm. or the extent to which they wish to have disclosure and the extent to which they wish there to be communication with with other people obviously always taking into account patient safety so you're saying that for example if if in the future i started being a a new doctor and if i developed a, a mental health condition that occupational health one of the things they could do would be to support me in letting key members of my team know if I felt that that was a really very much thing so. for me to do very much so that's good to and, know and yeah. it would depend also upon the nature of the mental health problem and whether or not the person concerned had been off sick because of this because mm. if they had they might well anyway have triggered the sort of processes that would lead to an occupational health referral or they might have been signposted 
um, yeah. in that direction. Yeah. And one of the most satisfying things for me professionally is to see somebody who has had or has still a significant um, background illness but has been helped by appropriate treatment, by careful follow-up, by adjustments in the workplace, by long-term support from occupational mm. health to actually achieve their goal. Something you mentioned in there was that uh, like long-term adjustments and support can be really, really helpful to people. Yes, in that they can. So Jadera has not sought any out. But what, what kind of practical changes could be made? You know, I'm asking as someone who, who has no idea what kind of adjustments could be made okay. for someone with so that if that I give condition. you an example of somebody, uh, let, let's take a fairly serious example, of, an example of a serious health issue. And this wouldn't apply to all people with this condition. But somebody with bipolar disorder, for example, mm-hmm. should be under the regular care of a consultant psychiatrist. Ideally, there should be regular liaison between that psychiatrist and the consultant in occupational medicine who's seen them. There should be careful identification of the trigger factors which precipitate a relapse. And one of the common things that triggers a relapse in bipolar disorder is disordered sleep-wake pattern. Interesting. So That's quite I common can, as a, as a newly qualified exactly. doctor, isn't it? So I can think of people who have had adjustments to their work over many years um, whereby they work a fixed shift pattern. Now that mm. depends upon the ability of the organisation to be able to provide this and also as one of my colleagues always says however much one may almost legislate for things or decree that things should happen, remember in occupational health we only advised whether something actually happens in the workplace or not depends not only upon the willingness of the person organising it to make this happen but also upon the willingness of other colleagues to fit in. Yeah I can see that so one person's accommodations will need for a bit of adjustments from the rest of the team as well so set shift patterns are there any other like practical examples of things uh, that might sometimes change sometimes some people not working in 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 particular areas okay. or not working after midnight not mm-hmm. working between midnight and 8 a.m yeah would be another one this isn't always easy to achieve, but guaranteed meal breaks sometimes. That would be, for example, oh, yeah. sometimes people mm-hmm. with di- not everybody with diabetes, but some people who have mm-hmm. fairly brittle diabetes and need some adjustment mm-hmm. to cope with that or mm-hmm. to cope with regular medication. Or that the commonest adjustment, of course, that's applied is a phased or gradual return to work yeah. um, after somebody's been on sick leave with a significant problem or struggling with a problem. Yeah. Um, sometimes people get a pause in training and are allowed to do the service part of their job only until they're able to to cope with the full demands of being a postgraduate trainee once more. Yeah, so a phased return to work is actually what our next doctor who we're going to hear from, She that's that's some of the support that she got from occupational health, actually. So that's a that's a surgeon who who's going to tell us about how it was to come to terms with um, having a, a new diagnosis of vestibular migraines. Uh, but we'll hear that right after this. How much do you care about indemnity right now? Probably not a lot. You're still a few years away from really worrying about claims and complaints from patients. But being part of medical protection is about a lot more than just indemnity. We can be there if something goes wrong, but we're also here to help make sure things go right too. We're the only medical defence organisation that protects doctors all over the world. From London to Brisbane, Cork to Cape Town, 300,000 members benefit from our expert advice and support throughout their career. During your years at medical school, your membership is completely free. You'll get training resources that can help you become an even better doctor, plus a dedicated student team there for you when you need it most. And when it comes to your elective, you can trust in our international experience to protect you wherever you choose to go. 
It's no wonder that 90% of medical students in the UK choose to be part of medical protection. You can find out more at medicalprotection.org. All right, back to the show. So the second doctor that we're going to hear from uh, on Sharp Scratch, uh, she's been with us before. It's Greta McLachlan. You might remember her from episode eight, Tips for New Docs. Uh, she's a trainee general surgeon and she took a year out to work at the BMJ uh, and she's just about to go off and start working for the GMC in the Cleveland Clinic now. And here's her story. About two, two, three years ago, I was off work for about three months Initially, we thought I'd got an acute labyrinthitis because I'd got some fantastic vertigo, nausea, banging headaches. And initially, we just thought it was taking a long time to sort of clear up. There wasn't much to be able to do with it. But because it had been going on for quite a while, I was sent for an MRI and saw a neurologist who said, actually, I think you're having vertebrobasilar migraines. There was part of me that thought, that's it. I've got to quit medicine can't become a surgeon with this. It was um, quite a depressing and anxiety-ridden time, actually. And then as I started to get better, was actually able to walk around the house, leave the house. I could look both ways when I was crossing the road. That's when I, I realised, OK, well, you know, we've got to start making provision for me getting back to work. And actually, I think it was my mother uh, who said, get in touch with Oki Health, do this properly, inverted commas. It's funny, I look back at it now and realise just quite how unwell I was. I think when you're in the eye of the storm, it's very difficult to sort of see out from it. And I'm a surgeon, I'm a bit of a go-getter, in commas. So it was basically being told that you have to completely slow down, really, really think about yourself, was almost quite an alien concept to me and it's something that I was definitely a struggle and something I've got a lot, a lot better at was sort of holding your hands up and saying actually I can't do this I think now I would consider I'm still a migraine sufferer so you know part of my past medical history is I suffer with migraines the adjustment of the realization that this is a lifelong illness or something that is with me now is really frustrating and really annoying but also is just part of life and something I've had to adjust to and take on board. It's a self-reflection. It's a realising who you are and what you're capable of doing and what you're not capable of doing and saying that that's okay. If I do get one, I I just, I don't go into work, mostly because it means, it normally means it's a really bad one and I, I shouldn't be dealing with patients at that point because it's really, really difficult when you're in, when you're in pain to, you know, you're so fatigued yourself you almost don't have the emotional resilience or the the emotional reserve to then care about someone else in the way that you should do so anna what was going through your head when you're listening to greta's story i don't know i was just thinking about how difficult it must have been for her like that was one of the things that I found most frustrating about being in pain for that like six months that I was in pain was the fact that it was stopping me from not just going to med school but like doing all of the other things I wanted to do a lot of which was like extracurricular stuff like Gress said I'm also an inverted commas go-getter you just have less cards to deal um, so you spend them all up in your day-to-day life and you can't do anything extra even if that's like fun stuff it just must have been so difficult for her to get back to work as well and yeah. it sounds like a pretty terrifying 
experience in terms of like the symptoms she was having as yeah. well you know you must just walk around the hospital being like oh no what if today's the day that I get a really horrible migraine and while I'm scrubbed in surgery or something like I think people must think about that a lot if they've got chronic illnesses mm. um, and they're working I think the phrase she used was that it was quite alien this feeling of slowing down mm. of accepting her limitations I think that's quite a sort of big adjustment in her journey since her diagnosis another thing she mentioned was that she expressed this idea that when you're in pain sometimes you haven't got enough emotional reserves left to care about people you mentioned how when you're in pain you felt like you didn't have enough cards you didn't have Mm. as many cards to deal out from your experience and from people you've spoken to what's it like talking to patients as a doctor after you've had a diagnosis when you've had health issues as a doctor or when people close to you have had health issues as a doctor it makes you appreciate more what other people are going through what your patients are going through and I think it also makes you value your work not Mm. just medicine but any work you're doing and it makes you appreciate if you get back to work successfully. And I'm not saying that you should always sacrifice everything else in order to work. And sometimes a, a judicious part of occupational health advice may be telling you actually that you can't do all your job for a while and you do need some adjustments or you do need some sick leave, but ideally accompanied with a, with a plan to return. But it does make you appreciate the value of actually being at work, what it feels like to be at work with a health problem, mm. but also the sense of great satisfaction when you're able to continue with your job despite having had a health issue. I yeah. think that's important. And mm. I think that's one of the things that the Faculty of Occupational Medicine with the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges is very keen to promote um, the idea of work as a health outcome. Tell, tell actually, me more about that. What, what do you mean by that? Well, that people getting back to work should be regarded as an outcome of good clinical care. Not everybody has access to an occupational physician or an occupational health service. Not everybody actually needs that. But as doctors, um, we're all dealing with people who are in work. As treating doctors, people are dealing with people who are in work um, and sometimes needing sick certification. And it's quite important as part of the message we give to people to actually take work into account and think about their need to get back to work or how they might be helped to get back to work or where you might signpost them to have that appropriate occupational health or occupational medical advice to do so. Because the most one of the most tragic things that I have seen would be somebody who has been on sick leave for a year or two years because originally somebody, some health professional, usually a doctor, felt with the best intentions of supporting them that they were not well enough to be at work, encouraged them to take sick leave, and that has been perpetuated and continued without any plan to return. So why is it so good to be at work? Because on the whole, the evidence is that people who have work or purposeful activity in their lives are healthier. The people associated with them are healthier. They're financially better. There's been a huge amount of work done by um, Department of, of Health and Department of Work and Pensions on this and Public Health England. And if you, uh, the statistics show that if somebody is away from work on sick leave and they're away from work for a year, they have a less than 5% chance of getting back to their own job. I, I kind of think as doctors as well, we kind of almost identify ourselves. Well, I mean, most people do identify themselves by their career. Yeah. I think... Yeah. I think one of the things that Greta must have find, found most difficult is she was this go-getter and then she's told basically to lower, well not lower her expectations, yeah. but think differently about 
kind of how she identifies herself. Yeah. And yeah. I think returning somebody back to work gives someone a sense of purpose, really. Absolutely. Mm. And she said for a few, for a short while, she, she occasionally thought, this is it, I can't be a surgeon anymore. But she was able to keep being a surgeon. Uh, and she, I think she is planning to go back to her training when she's finished her various years out of, of the training scheme at the moment. But I think people who are, are long-term ill might have... This is like the opposite of what you were talking about earlier, of people being told that they should keep trying when maybe they should change career. But what about the flip side, when sometimes you might get a discouraging comment thrown your way that maybe you should consider another career? Well, I, th- I think it's important that major changes um, in career and job are not made without appropriate advice, and that's appropriate health advice and appropriate organisational management advice in terms mm. of what's possible in the workplace. I don't know about you guys, but I feel like I've got a better understanding of what it might be like to be a doctor with a health condition from your story, Declan, and from hearing from Greta and Chidera as well. So before we move on and talk a bit more about occupational health and the details of nitty gritty of how it works and how we can plug into it. First, let me tell you listeners how much we appreciate you listening to Sharp Scratch. We really do appreciate you so, so much. We want you to know it. So we've teamed up with On Examination to get you a special Sharp Scratch discount of 15%. So if you've not heard of it, On Examination is a question bank for medical students. Uh, regular listeners will know that I absolutely swear by question banks when it comes to revision. And personally, On Examination is my current favourite question bank because it's got its own app that works really well on my phone as well as you know being able to access the website online. This special Sharp Scratch discount is 15%. So if you're going for, say, medical student finals, then you'll pay less than 32 instead of 37 quid for an access to a bank of over 4,000 questions in those critical last three months before your exams. And the discounts are across all exams. So uh, and, and also for new doctors listening, the MRCP part one as well. So head to the student section of onexamination.com, select your exam and enter Sharp Scratch. That's all caps, no spaces at the checkout for a 15% discount. That's 15% off on examination with a promo code of sharp scratch. All caps, no spaces. So now that we've heard the insightful stories from Greta and Chidera too, I think the next step is to understand how we might access support from, say, occupational health. Last episode, we asked the question of how sick is sick enough to call in sick? So now I want to know how long is long enough that I can start thinking about asking for help to come back to work? Never too soon to start thinking about help to get back to work. Certainly, if somebody is approaching uh, four weeks absence from work, they should be seen in occupational health and most sickness absence policies in trust will have triggers to refer people to occupational health. Um, We are always happy in our service where we take self-referrals to see people before that or at least to get an appointment in hand. But that very much depends upon the service which is provided Mm. um, where you're working. And how how would Anna or Declan and I, or I, how would we start the process? Would we have to call a number? Would we have to talk to a person? First of all, you should... I hope, as part of your induction, wherever you're working, know where your occupational health service is. Is that something you, you learnt in your induction, Declan? Um, so if we declare that we have a healthcare problem, we have to have an appointment with... Oh, yeah, Jadera mentioned that. Yeah, yeah, yeah as Jadera yeah. mentioned. 
in my induction? It doesn't spring to mind particularly. All doctors should have had health screening before they start work. Okay, so hopefully when Anna and I become doctors, we'll find out in our induction or through the screening process. Or through, or, or through the, the hospitals. I mean, if somebody declares a health problem at health screening or declaration, they may then be referred to occupational health or asked to contact occupational health. But all doctors should be made, like all new staff, should be made aware of where occupational health is and the contact numbers or the email portal, rather, yeah. uh, to contact occupational health to ask for an appointment. Because that usually goes along should with do it. policies about like needle sticks and stuff yes. right yeah okay yeah, so yeah, yeah. because no. is that well, the same service yes oh, well yes but yes because occupational health is where you contact if you've had a needle stick injury mm. um occupational health is concerned with protecting people's health at work protecting them from hazards not protecting them directly from hazards in the workplace but from dealing with the consequences of hazards in the workplace and making sure that they've had the appropriate immunizations including their annual flu immunization to protect them and protect their patients yeah of course that's loads of th- loads of different things yes so in the context of that, you should already be aware of the contact number or entry portal on your trust system. Cool. So I get hold of occupational health on the phone. And you ask for an appointment. Ask for an appointment. So then I'll get an appointment. And what might happen in that first what appointment? Might you might be seen, depends on the service. Sure. And the, the services do differ um, in different parts of the country and different trusts. But very often your first appointment may be with an occupational health nurse or an occupational health nurse advisor who may be able to answer your questions. It depends what you're asking. If you have a more complex problem or a more long-term health problem, then the nurse will very probably refer you to one of the occupational physicians or you can ask directly yourself, you certainly can in our trust, for an appointment with a consultant occupational physician. Okay. Um, You can... Also, if you wish to, access occupational health via what's called management referral, where somebody who is responsible for your management or your training may be very happy to authorise a referral to occupational health for you. The only thing about a management referral is that that usually comes with questions from the manager. It's equally intended to support you, but they would normally expect a report back. The general rule of occupational health reports is that they do not disclose clinical details, and it's very important, unless it helps with consent sometimes helps understanding of the situation but it's very important particularly in a healthcare workplace that people's health issues don't become a matter of general discussion because it's always quite tempting you know as doctors or as nurses Mm. to think well what's the diagnosis or what should be done or or how to do it and that's not what people should be doing when they're in a supervisory or a management capacity so any communication from occupational health will generally be in functional terms and may contain some advice about how how somebody can be helped or supported in the workplace or may even say that they need a period of of sickness absence. Occupational health don't normally provide the sick certification. If that's needed, that would be from the GP or the treating clinician. It's important that you realise that reports that are sent from occupational health and occupational medical reports are only sent with the consent of the person concerned and you always have the right to read the report beforehand and to or the letter beforehand and to ask for amendment if you feel that there are any inaccuracies of fact. You can discuss the opinion. If you disagree with the opinion, the person may decline to uh, to change that because they may say that is my opinion but you can say well I don't want you to send the letter and you can if you wish provide an accompanying further information to go with the letter so you're very much in control of that process the only circumstances in which it would be taken out of your hands would be in the situation that there was a grave risk to patient yeah patient safety and that applies to all doctors yeah so for example somebody with a you know rampant bloodborne virus infection 
yeah. uh, who was proposing to uh, embark on some form of surgery or something. Yeah. So I'm hearing there's there's a bunch of different ways to be referred or to access occupational health services. Yes. And once you're there, there's this massive focus on confidentiality, which is really massive good to hear. Massive focus on confidentiality. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, probably more confidential than anywhere else. So if we sat down to an appointment, a first appointment, what kind of questions might we get asked about our condition? Like In vague general terms, because I know it would be different for every single condition. The same as any clinical consultation. It would be, what is troubling you? What are you concerned about? Probably in an occupational health consultation, unlike most other medical consultations, there would be a specific focus on your job or your training. What is your job? What is your training? What do you actually do? What are your hours of work? How is it organised? Who do you work with? So some actual understanding of the work and the workplace. And occasionally it might be necessary to actually visit the workplace, again with your consent if it was about an individual. But usually the occupational health people know pretty well about the workplaces and have visited it before. And then there will be an assessment of your clinical condition, same sort of based on exactly the same principles as any other clinical assessment, history, examination. Occupational health wouldn't normally do further tests or further investigations, but they might, with your consent, communicate with other doctors about you, with other doctors who had seen you, to find out what had been done, what that specialist thought about the prognosis in the situation, what their opinion was. And mm. the aim is that everybody works together to do the best for you in yeah. terms of both health and work. And then you mentioned that, that occupational health advises on what adjustments might be made and so on. Can a hospital ever decline to make, or a, yes, any they kind can. of workplace? The responsibility for decline. the decision about an adjustment rests with the employer. It doesn't rest with occupational health. So how does that fit in with the sort of the legal rights aspect? That, exactly, that is what the law says. First of all, in, in general terms, and a lawyer would tell you in more detail, yeah. that the Equality Act says that if somebody has a disability in the terms of the Equality Act, most of the conditions we've been talking about today would come into that category, conditions which have a long-term, if they're going to last for more than 12 months and have a long-term effect, um, and ha ha have an effect on day-to-day -day activities. Um, if somebody is covered by the Equality Act, the employer has a duty to consider reasonable adjustments. So recommended so to somebody's condition. But the decision about whether they are reasonable is ultimately determined, if you like, by an employment tribunal if it came mm. to that. But mm. the sort of factors that come into whether it's reasonable is um, how big the organisation is, what the scope is for for a physical alteration to a building. Mean, for example, you couldn't uh, re build a new building just to accommodate one person, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, you have to look at what is reasonable in terms of expense, feasibility, practicality, and length of time for which it would be required. But in my experience, um, the NHS is very good at doing this, and of the doctors we see, the vast majority return to work. Only we see over the occupational physicians in our service see over 500 uh, doctors and medical students a year. The vast majority return to work or maintain their work or their training. Less than five percent leave their work or their training. Of those who go back to work, two thirds are helped to do so by adjustments in the mm. workplace, of which the majority are short term, some are permanent. Have you got any questions? I'm just looking at your face, and you've had a very thinking face on Anna. No, I was just thinking about the uh, the use of the word reasonable and how, um, how widely that interpreted yeah. that would be. That's, yeah. that's ultimately a legal definition yeah. and the judgment about whether the, the adjustments were reasonable is ultimately something that's presented to an employment tribunal. <laughs> 
Okay, interesting. Is there anything else that you would really like our medical student and new doctor listeners to know? I'd like them to know that occupational medicine is a fantastic specialty (laughs) (laughs) and a fantastically satisfying career. (laughs) Uh, And I would also like to mention again the point I made earlier that work as an outcome of good clinical care is something which all doctors and all health professionals Mm. should consider and be aware of. Are there any sort of key resources that you think would be really good for us to know about? You could read the two reports produced last year which emphasised the importance of specialist occupational medical advice in helping doctors and medical students and that's welcomed and valued from the GMC and its Health Education England report into learners and what would, I get out of, what would I get out of reading those? You would understand how seriously the establishment, if you like, takes the question of doctors with health problems. And I hope it would reinforce what I've told you about the value that occupational medicine can provide. <laughs> All right. Oh, thank you so much for that. that's all from us on sharp scratch today uh, if you'd like to hear more from us then subscribe to sharp scratch wherever you get your podcasts and in two weeks time you'll get our next episode straight to your phone and while you wait for the next episode do check us out on social media we're bmj student on twitter facebook and instagram and do let us know what you think about the podcast using the hashtag sharp scratch because we absolutely love hearing your ideas for things that we could cover later on in the season and it's also so helpful to us if you can leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to a podcast because it really does help other med students find the show. Next time, we'll be talking about how to certify and pronounce death. But until then, goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. Bye. Goodbye and thank you for having me.